welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We're going to be looking at Hosea chapter 10 today, and I do apologize for those of you who got a blank recording for Hosea 9 yesterday. I have fixed it. You can go back and listen to that if you'd like. With Hosea chapter 10, we read, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. Yahweh will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear Yahweh. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gabeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gabeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them, when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thrash, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves unrighteousness. Sorry. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek Yahweh, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shaman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil at dawn. The king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Our text of judgment against God's people here continues. You can see maybe with the subtitle, we might get a bit of a shake-up tomorrow. Uh, The next chapter is subtitled, Yahweh's Love for Israel. So we'll see what we see there, but we cover our text for today first. Verse 1 starts out with the idea that God has created Israel as a people, as a nation, and he has greatly blessed them. So they are a luxuriant vine, luxury, well-blessed, very rich. Um, They produce much fruit, right? God has given them many things. They were fruitful, many children. Uh, Their their livestock were increasing, uh, all those kinds of things. But the more the fruit increased, the more things got better. Instead of thanking God for their blessings, they used those blessings for idolatry. So the altars and the pillars of verse 1 are references to pagan worships, uh, worship sites and practices. 
that Israel was partaking in. Their heart is false. They don't trust in God. And they will now bear their guilt. So the the picture there very much so is going to be like what we see later in the chapter. Where is that? Verse 11. That he's going to put Ephraim to the yoke. When we talk about bearing our burden, we almost start to visualize it like a yoke. Like the, the wooden instrument placed upon the shoulders of a, a beast of burden so that they can pull the plow or or whatever it is that they're going to use to work the field that's the picture here too with this idea of bearing their guilt their sins are upon their shoulders they have to carry that and it's too much the lord is going to break down their altars and destroy their pillars the people should have, right? The call to repentance has happened numerous times. They should have repented. They should have torn down these false altars themselves. But because they haven't, the day will soon come when God will. This is one of the ways you can talk about this text in your family. Are there any idols in your life or in the life of your family that you should repent of and tear down before God does? We all have idols. Anything that we trust in above the Lord himself is an idol. This could be big picture. You know, if we worship the almighty dollar, if if we put our trust in our own ability to care for ourselves and for our family, if we're looking to our career and our fortune, and we're, you know, obsessed with our retirement plan, whatever those things might be, that can certainly be an idol. And if that's the case, it needs to be torn down. We need to repent of that and instead live a life of generosity toward those around us, giving and giving and giving, trusting that the Lord will continue to care for us. He will continue to provide for our family, even if it's not the way that we thought it would be. And then, you know, there's other examples too. You know, think of what what might hinder your family from being in God's house this weekend. Or next? What is it that prevents you from remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy and actually going to worship and receiving the gifts that Christ has won for you on the cross, the forgiveness uh, that you get, that you receive from him in absolution and in the Lord's Supper? If there is something standing in the way of that, almost always, almost, that thing is an idol. I mean, there's examples, of course, there's exceptions. You woke up Sunday morning and you had a heart attack. You can't make it. Or even, you know, church is a half an hour away. You you get into the vehicle and you start driving and your car breaks down. That's a different conversation than I wanted to sleep in or I have this activity to do today or, you know, I just don't feel like it or I have company visiting and they wouldn't want to go to church All of those things are examples of idols, things that we have given a better place than God in our hearts and in our lives. If those things are there for your family, repent together, tear them down. Trust in the Lord above all things. That is an encouragement to us from a text like this in general. The warning that God gives to repent hits us in just that way. 
verse 3. Um, they have had some turmoil and, and turnover in their kings, um, but the fact that here they say they have no king is more of a reference to God himself than it is to an earthly king. What could a God, what could a king do for us? The people see no need for God. And that fits into what we were just talking about too. You know, why should I go to church? <laughs> what benefit is it to me to actually go, go there to that place? It's just the same thing they do every week. What's it matter if I miss a week here or there? Or if I, you know, what's it matter if I'm only there once a month? or whatever the conversation might end up being. What could he do for us? Well, in Israel's case, save them. Restore them. Make them a luxuriant vine again that is faithful and good. And in our case, it's that forgiveness. Every time you enter the Lord's house, his forgiveness is there for you. And if it's not, your pastor's not doing his job. That's what we pastors are here for. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. We get to handle his gifts and provide them to you. Verse 4, you reap what you sow. So they, are, they have been sowing emptiness and lies, and so they're going to reap a judgment because of that. The picture there, they, they end up with poisonous weeds in the field. Yeah, they... They were a poisonous people with all their lies and, and, and such. Verse 5, this could be the destruction mentioned in verse 2. So the idea that the calf is going to be mourned, that's their idol, one of their idols. So it could be a reference to verse 2 that God has torn this thing down. Although verse 6 almost makes it sound like Instead, one of the foreign kings of Assyria, probably Tiglath-Pileser III here, required it of them as a tribute in order that he would apparently ally with them. We've read about that, a little bit of that in the book so far. They were trusting in foreign powers to be basically their protectors. We're going to hire this nation to protect us from other enemies. And so it, it could well be, the way the text reads here, it could be God tearing them down with the destruction that is coming, in which case Assyria was the one doing the destruction and they got the golden calf from that. Or it could be that Israel was, it was demanded of Israel to offer up that golden calf as a tribute to the king prior to the destruction. So either way, Tiglath gets it. Um, and Assyria is, sorry, Israel is without their, their false god to worship. But the thing here, the important note in verse 5, is not really that as much as it is they, they fear and tremble the destruction of their idol and not themselves. They are going to be destroyed, and all they can think about is their false god is gone. And again, that fits into this call uh, upon us to repent. If our false idols, the things that you were just discussing as a family, if, if those were suddenly taken away from you, we would find ourselves mourning that they're gone rather than mourning that God's judgment might be upon us. That's the difference here. That's the, the thing to see. 
Ephraim shall be put to shame, verse 6. That shame is the idea of worthlessness, that their, their way of life, everything that they have done will prove worthless. Even allying themselves with Assyria proves to be worthless, as Assyria is the one that does them in. Verse 7, uh, the king is going to perish like a twig on the water. So you toss a twig into a river and just watch it get swept away. So Samaria's king, Samaria being Israel's capital, is just going to be swept away, destroyed. Whether it's Beth-Avon in verse 5 or Avon down here in verse 8, Avon is the, the Hebrew word here for wickedness, iniquity. And so Beth is the Hebrew word, actually Baeth in Hebrew, for a house. So this is the house of wickedness. Or in verse 8, the high places of wickedness. Likely not the name the Israelites themselves were using to refer to these places, but something God is saying of them, because this is where Israel is really doing the wicked thing that they do. Their idolatry is, is at hand. So God is going to destroy their idolatry, tear it down. Their altars, their pagan places of worship, are going to be deserted. So thorn and thistle grow up on the altar because there's no one there to prevent it from happening. And the day will come when they will say to the mountain, cover us and the hills fall on us. Jesus is going to quote that verse, that phrase in Luke chapter 23, verse 30, as he's on the road, as he's walking and carrying the cross to Mount Golgotha, to Calvary. He's going to speak those words to those who mourned him in the crowd. Essentially what those words are saying is what we saw yesterday in chapter 9, verse 14. Hosea's prayer that the children would not live long enough to see the destruction that would come. Very similar here. The prayer is, uh, not the prayer, the people are, are, well, I guess they are praying, but they're not praying to God. They're praying to creation, that creation would take them rather than God's wrath. Better for a, you know, a mountain to fall on me, you know, a rock slide to just end my life, than for me to be left to the hands of God, whom I have sinned against. That's the picture here. Verse 9 again references Judges 19, the sin of Gabeah, um, with uh, the men and the, the men of that city coming against the house and demanding to have their way with the, the inhabitants. War against the unjust will overtake them. Fitting picture. When I please, I will discipline them. God can bring about his judgment whenever he sees fit. His timing is perfect. We may not understand it, but his timing is perfect. Just as his timing of sending Jesus was perfect. Just as his timing of sending Jesus again will be perfect. The nations will be gathered against them. Assyria, Egypt, and the future Babylon, their, their enemies are coming. And they will be bound up like prisoners, except for as captives, and they will be led away. Verse 11's picture is, is really interesting. God has created a beautiful people, a beautiful creation, and he desired to leave them in that beauty, to just allow them to be and to live freely. You can think of Adam and Eve in the garden, and we talk about how they had free will. But now because of their sin and their abuse of that freedom, 
God is going to put a neck up, uh, he's going to put a yoke upon the neck. And so, whereas he mentioned, he calls this beast of burden beautiful and had a fair neck, so a beautiful neck, and he didn't want to ruin that. Uh, they have ruined themselves. And so now he puts the yoke on, which means he is putting them to labor in the field. And so we see that Judah must plow. It's a reference here together with verse 12, that God is calling again his people to repent. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. It is time to seek Yahweh. It's a call to repent, a call to trust in God, seeking his righteousness and the love that he has for his people. And then the end of the verse, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. When does this happen? When does God come? And when does God give to us his righteousness? And this is in Jesus. You can talk about Christmas or the incarnation um, where God comes in the flesh. His perfection in the flesh in this little baby boy, Jesus. And it's going to happen again, really, when we think about it in the second coming of Christ, as Christ comes again in righteousness for his people. Verse 13, iniquity and justice lies, uh, the, the heaping up of their idolatry. They trusted in their own way and in the multitude of their warriors. So reference to their own pride, their thinking that they were strong enough to defend themselves. And in verse 14, that's all done. War arises among the people, their fortresses, so their strength destroyed. The referent of verse 14 is unknown to us. Shalman doesn't appear anywhere else in scripture. It could be shorthand for the Assyrian king Shalmaneser, but again, this is just an unknown event to us, at least at this time. Verse 15 um, has that unknown event, that destruction in verse 14 had come about, so that will come upon the house of God. That's what Bethel means. Beth, Baeth, Baeth, uh, Hebrew for house, Ale, Hebrew for God. So Beth, Ale, Bethel. Because of their evil, God will destroy them. The dawn is normally a thing of hope. A new day brings new life, uh, brings the continued gifts of God, but not here. Instead, the next day brings judgment. It brings death. So again, another tough chapter of judgment for us, but these things are a call for us to consider and to repent as well. And we'll see if tomorrow's chapter Yahweh's love for Israel gives us a little more hope.